Gracious Father, um, you truly are gracious. Um, as we sang uh, just now, God, we, uh, we recall just your great mercy toward us. Um, we look at um, the entire Bible. We look at the Old Testament and the New, and it is just filled with uh, your grace and your mercy. And uh, even a passage tonight that um, can be a little harsh, um, that can call us out and expose us, God, we see that um, this is your means of, of loving us. This is uh, you exposing our sin so that um, we may turn from that sin, the sin which causes destruction, um, and we may turn to you and um, enjoy the blessings of, of knowing you and walking with you, God, in paths of righteousness. And so um, I just ask for uh, your blessing on the preaching of your word tonight um, and that you would be gloried, uh, glorified for um, yeah, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them with me to the book of Jonah. Um, we're still in chapter 1, and tonight we'll be looking at verses 4 to 16. And believe it or not, if uh, you've been with us, you'll remember uh, it's been almost two months since our introductory message to the book of Jonah. Uh, so I thought it would be helpful to just give a recap and an overview of the book just to refresh our minds before we jump into today's passage. If you remember last time, the book of Jonah is a collection of books in our English Bibles called the Minor Prophets. And in the Hebrew Bible, it's referred to as the book of the Twelve. Some of these books include prophets such as Hosea, Amos, Micah, Malachi, uh, that end our English Bibles, and these all declare essentially the same message. And that message is to call Israel from their sinful and idolatrous ways back to God, lest they face judgment and be sent into exile. If you remember the overarching story of the Bible, uh, you might be starting your, your Bible reading plans, and so you're going through the Old Testament. Uh, you'll remember that after the fall, God selects one man Abraham. And it's through Abraham that God would reverse the curse of the fall and bring blessing to the whole world. It was Abraham's descendants later on in the story, the nation of Israel, who were meant to be a kingdom of priests. We see that in the book of Exodus and the channel of blessing to the whole world, the channel of blessing that Abraham's descendants were supposed to be. However, as we go through the Old Testament, from Joshua to the book of Kings, which traces the history of Israel, we see her steady decline as she turns her back from God to commit spiritual adultery. We see Israel pursue other gods and commit evil acts. So God, what does he do? He appoints prophets on his behalf to pronounce judgment and to call the people to repent from their ways. A separate feature that we see in the prophets is that the nation's will be judged as well for their wickedness. But the hope is that they will participate in the future glorious restoration alongside Israel as they turn to Yahweh and worship him in the future. So Jonah fits into this prophetic paradigm in that he is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And his story serves as an indictment for the northern kingdom's idolatry and arrogance. Francis taught us last time that the problem with the nation, and in particular the northern kingdom, during the time of Jonah, 
was that it began to mistake its free and unmerited election as God's people with something that they earned or deserved. And so this led to an attitude of exclusivity, supremacy, and pride as they looked at the surrounding pagan nations who didn't worship God. In 2 Kings 14, we read that Jonah was a prophet during the time of King Jeroboam II. And so in King, 2 Kings 14, 23 to 25, we see that Jeroboam II was an evil king who did evil in the eyes of the Lord and led the people of Israel into sin. However, despite this negative assessment, Jonah as a prophet in 2 Kings delivered God's word proclaiming that Jeroboam would be successful in expanding Israel's borders in the north. And so despite their sin, God saw the affliction of his wayward people and instead of leaving them as he should have, he saved them according to his covenant faithfulness. However, as is a recurring theme in the Old Testament, instead of repenting, Jeroboam and the people, they continued in their wicked ways. And they did this by turning away from God and serving idols once again. And we know this happened with the Northern Kingdom after God bailed them out because Hosea and Amos, they severely rebuked the people later during Jeroboam's reign. So they went back to their old ways. So when God calls his prophet to proclaim repentance, this is Jonah, to the wicked Assyrians, and he refuses out of self-righteousness, there's a great deal of irony here. Because Jonah, who represents Israel in the story, is essentially saying, God, you want me to proclaim a message to those people? Those wicked Assyrians in the city of Nineveh, they're not worthy of your message. Jonah should have been the best person to preach this message to Nineveh after witnessing God's grace to his people who were in sin. Yet we see immediately in the opening verses, and we covered this last time, Jonah's proud refusal to declare this message to a wicked people just like his own. Instead, he sets his mind on disobeying God and fleeing in the complete opposite direction to Tarshish. So on the one hand, the book of Jonah, it's an indictment against Israel and it serves as a stern rebuke to them. But on the other hand, the book of Jonah proclaims that Yahweh feels love, compassion, and mercy, not just for Israel and Judah, but also for the foreign cities like Nineveh. Francis suggested last time that the book of Jonah is not only meant for the Israelites, but for us as God's people as well. It can be hard reading the Old Testament sometimes and seeing where are the connections? How does it affect us as Christians, as New Covenant, New Testament believers? But we saw that the book of Jonah is meant to flip a mirror on all of God's people. It's meant to challenge us not to think so highly of ourselves as those who deserve God's grace compared to others. But we see that Jonah as a prophet should be the apex of spirituality, right? The prophets, they were the servants of the Lord, but this servant did everything he could to avoid fulfilling the divine command. Instead, as we'll see in tonight's passage, idol-worshiping Gentiles, they are the ones who come to repent and fear God, not his prophet. So this serves as a foil and an indictment on God's proud and disobedient people. And so the key idea that we want to remember for ourselves, and you can see that on your notes there, and just to keep it in mind as we go through this passage, is to see if we are failing to acknowledge God's sovereignty or if there's any rebellion or hypocrisy in our own lives. And so, you know, this is meant to not just tear us down, right, and just leave us there, but the conviction we might feel from this passage, right, as we look to ourselves and examine ourselves, this should lead us to repentance, 
right? And repentance always leads to a restored relationship with God, and this leads to joy and blessing and walking in new ways with God. So while keeping that in mind, let's read tonight's passage. So Jonah 1, starting in verse 4, going to verse 16. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo and that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So the book of Jonah can be understood as being arranged in scenes. In the first three verses of the book, we get the opening scene that sets the stage for the story. And the following scene takes place in our passage tonight, where conflict and drama begin to rise. So when we come to verse four, the author, he interrupts the narrative sequence to call attention to the Lord's intervention. If you remember in the beginning of the story, Jonah thought he could run away from God's assignment for him, and he thought he could escape God's presence. But God, who was the passive victim of Jonah's tactics in the preceding verses, now intervenes with activity of his own. And he forcefully reminds Jonah and the readers that he will not be brushed aside and ignored. The storm is God's reminder and proof that he is the one who controls Jonah's fate, not Jonah. And usually there's nothing uncommon or unusual about a storm at sea. And we want to be careful always about reading too much into ordinary events in life. But we also want to be careful of making the opposite error by thinking God is some deistic God who is far off, who's uninvolved in sustaining and orchestrating his creation. We want to remember that no event in any realm of nature or life is an accident. For all of nature and creation is under the sovereign command and lordship of its creator and sustainer. And God often uses ordinary means to accomplish his purposes and prompt his people in specific directions. And so here we're informed that this storm, it had a special purpose. It wasn't random. And so the narrator reminds the audience that the storm, it's not a coincidence, but we're reminded of Exodus, for example, and the parting of the Red Sea, where it says God parted the sea 
by bringing an east wind, by natural means. And so this is made so clearly that God is the actor here, right? Where the narrator emphasizes the divine origin of the storm by placing the subject God at the very start of the sentence in verse four. And so you're thinking, so what? Well, this is normal for us in English syntax, but in the Hebrew, the word order with the subject first is contrary to the normal verb first order. And so the narrator does this to place an emphasis on the Lord's acts over against those of Jonah. Jonah thought he could just walk away from a divine assignment for God's kingdom. But we see that the plans of a sovereign God are not easily thwarted by the stubborn will of a tiny prophet. And it was not easy to resign God's commission for him. God sends a great wind on the sea and it breaks a storm so strong that the ship is ready to crack. And so God causes the wind, which causes a storm, which caused the ship to be in danger of sinking. And it leads us to this situation. God may seem like he is in the shadows far off from Jonah in the story. Jonah certainly felt that way, but Jonah is reminded very forcefully that God is right there with him. God is the ultimate primary cause and mover and orchestrator of all things in this situation for his purposes. And it is this danger of a storm that he causes that sets the remaining action into motion. And so this storm is meant to produce a certain outcome among Jonah and we'll see with the pagan sailors as well. Just a few weeks ago during the holidays, uh, some of you may have seen all over the news, or maybe social media, just the crazy weather that was happening all over the country. And typically living in California, we're exempt from these sorts of things, right? I mean, that's why so many people live here. That's why it's so expensive, right? It's because of the amazing weather, right? For us to avoid inconveniences that most parts of the country don't face on a yearly basis. But even two weeks ago, I saw videos of people paddling uh, on their surfboards on the flooded streets of San Francisco. And I saw cars almost fully submerged in, uh, or on the freeways of Sacramento. In Buffalo, uh, New York, people were sleeping in targets because they got suddenly hit by intense blizzards. And then around Christmas time, I'm sure you all heard about the thousands of flights that were canceled and how people were stuck in airports for days just trying to get home. I read an article that Southwest Airlines had to cancel over 16,000 flights and that it could cost the company up to $800 million. And whenever things like this happen, especially if you've ever experienced something like it, maybe you experienced it uh, this winter, it always reminds us of just how powerless and small we are. In the modern age, technology has made us feel invincible, like gods even. We feel like we can do as we please whenever we want at the touch of a button, and we really can. And we can be just like Jonah and not give a second thought to God and, and think we're in total control of our lives, right? be under this illusion. But all it takes is a snowstorm or some heavy rain to put us in our place and remind us that God is God and we are not. Some of you here tonight might be running away from God and rebelling against him, thinking you are the ruler of your own life. You might think you have control because of your capabilities or the access you have to things. You think you can just forget God, but God reminds us through simple events like weather storms or flight delays and other things that are out of our control that he is the sovereign Lord over creation and the Lord over our lives. So as we come to verses five to eight, 
We move on in the story and see that God exposes our rebellion. Verses five to six, as the storm rages on, we see that the pagan sailors, they begin to cry out to their gods because they're in desperation. And so they begin hurling cargo overboard. These sailors probably came from various nations and worshiped different deities, but their crying out to their deities we see is ineffective. And it reminds all involved again, who is the one really in control. But the crazy thing is, is if you notice that while all of this is going on, Jonah is sleeping at the bottom of the ship. And when we read this, we might be wondering, how could anybody be asleep during a storm like this? Some have suggested that perhaps Jonah was exhausted from the taxing journey and he was glad to have an opportunity to relax. Others have suggested that the storm was so terrifying to Jonah, who is not used to being on the sea, that this led to physical impotence and unconsciousness. Other commentators point to the extreme emotional exhaustion and depression that is inevitable when a person directly rebels against God in the way Jonah did. Maybe Jonah simply just didn't care anymore about anything. Whatever theories we might come up with, the narrator simply doesn't tell us why or how Jonah was asleep in this situation. Either way, what we see going on is a stark contrast between Jonah and the sailors, and this is going to run throughout this passage, and it's going to be an important theme. Because here, the pagan sailors, they shake before God's wrathful storm, while Jonah, he's sleeping in the hold of the ship. In verse 6, Jonah's sleep is suddenly disturbed by the captain, and he implores Jonah to call out on his God. And at this point, the captain and those on the ship, they're doing all they can just to survive, right? And they can hope uh, that by each man calling to his God, that at least one prayer, one God will stick. And at this point, the sailors on the ship, they don't know which God is the one behind the storm. And so as we move on in verses seven to eight, in a final act of desperation, the sailors, they begin casting lots. And in today's terms, uh, in case you don't know what casting lots is, it would be like rolling dice or drawing straws or uh, pulling names out of a hat. And in the ancient world, there were many ways of casting lots. And here, it probably consisted of marked stones that could be thrown or rolled like dice. And it would indicate who is chosen and who is not in a situation. So casting lots was meant to pick one person out of a whole group through a gradual process of elimination. And so the rulers of ancient Israel, for example, they used lots that functioned this way to inquire of God about who was to be king or who was to be guilty. For example, in 1 Samuel 14, uh, yeah, we read, Saul cast lots to see whose sin had caused God to be silent when he inquired of him whether to go to battle or not. And so the sailors in this situation, they do this in order to identify who the guilty party is and who is the reason for this storm. And it's no surprise that in the story, we see that the lots, they fall on Jonah. And we're reminded of Proverbs 16, where it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So this is just a further confirmation that God is in sovereign control over these events and is orchestrating everything. But God doesn't just use the casting of lots to display his sovereignty and leave it there. But he's using this to expose Jonah to the sailors and bring him to face his calling as a prophet. The wind, the sailors, the lots, all of these things are the agents of God for this purpose. Because after identifying him through lot casting, the crew begins slamming Jonah with these aggressive questions. 
And you can feel the anger and the desperation as these men who have been fighting for their lives finally find out who is to blame for their potential deaths. Their anger is meant to be the means and an extension of God's anger, which is meant to confront Jonah and turn him from his rebellion. They ask Jonah why the storm has come upon them, and they wonder if one of them or Jonah is guilty of something so as to bring this wrath upon them. So they begin asking Jonah who he is and where he's from. And it's kind of odd if you notice that the sailors, they also ask what line of work Jonah is in. And in other words, the sailors are wondering what purpose Jonah has on this boat. Is he a businessman? Is he a trader of goods? Is he a traveler? Why is he on the boat? And why is he out of favor with his God? And whether they know it or not, their question about Jonah's occupation is God's way of burdening Jonah's conscience to remind him that he is a prophet of Israel meant to fulfill the mission God gave him, whether he likes it or not. And you could just imagine all eyes are on Jonah now. He can't run anymore. He can't go to the bottom of the ship because they know now that he is the cause of all this. And no matter where he goes, God will find him and expose him. And what's interesting is that during all of this, God is not saying one word. If you notice that in the story, God doesn't speak. But God's silence was never so loud. Because although God is not speaking to Jonah audibly, he is speaking and communicating to him through the storm and through the sailors. Jonah keeps trying to suppress his conscience. He doesn't want to fulfill God's call, God's mission for his life, but God won't let him run away. And like Jonah, we know what we ought to do for God's kingdom at times, but we run away from it too. So what does God do? He confronts us. There are times where God does not speak to us audibly, but we know, right? We know he may be confronting you and your rebellion through different means, right? Through sermons, friends checking in on you, keeping you accountable through your own conscience as you read his word and as you pray to him. So the point the author is making is to stop running away and to repent and submit to God's ways. He's saying, stop trying to sweep it under the rug and push it to the back of your mind. So the question for us is, in what ways are we trying to hide from God? In what ways might God be lovingly confronting us with our sin through various means, calling us to repent so that we might experience his forgiveness and the way of life? Verses 9 to 10, quite incredibly, for the first time in the story, we see that Jonah speaks. After the sailors ask him questions about his identity, Jonah responds by identifying himself as a Hebrew who fears the God of heaven. And in case some of us forgot or don't know, to fear God means to view God with respect and reverence and to submit to him the way a servant submits to a king and serves a king. And so with that definition in mind, when we read this verse, something should stand out to us immediately. Do you see the irony and hypocrisy going on here? Up until this point, Jonah has been refusing to obey God, has been refusing to fear God, but the very first words that come out of his mouth in this book are these. Right? And this is a stroke of literary genius by the author because he's carefully crafting the narrative in such a way that the first words that come out of Jonah's mouth are full of irony. And they should make the entire audience, right, the Israelites as they're reading this, and us even, anybody who reads this and who has, is reading the story, look at each other in bewilderment and say, is this guy serious? 
How could Jonah be so blind and say such a thing? Jonah thinks his identity lies in being a God-fearing Israelite, but when we survey the data from his life thus far, we might rightfully think that his identity is an unbeliever, someone who is disobedient and who stubbornly refuses to acknowledge God. Jonah says he fears the Lord, the God of heaven, but he acts like a pagan Gentile who doesn't. About a month ago, I was in Kentucky for a week-long class on campus, and I was able to meet some other men doing ministry in different parts of the country. And one of the guys I met is, uh, he's a director of Crew, so Campus Crusades for Christ. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that ministry um, at a large university in Texas. And it was great chatting and talking to him about his ministry and his experience there. And one thing he said that is a challenge for them is that they get a lot of students who come from the Bible Belt and who are cultural Christians. And in case you're unfamiliar with the term Bible Belt, It refers to a part of the country, particularly the South, where Christianity is deeply embedded into the culture and into most families, where most people in that region grew up going to church and reading their Bibles, praying before mealtimes, going to youth group and summer camps. And this guy I was talking to said that they get a lot of college Christians who grew up in this environment, but who don't really know God as you talk to them and as you look at their lives. They say they love and know God, that they fear God, just like Jonah says here. But in reality, it's totally cultural. It's totally tied to family or, or to even being born in the United States, a Christian country, right? It's not real. Their faith isn't real. And they proclaim Christ, but their lives are in complete contradiction to their profession of faith. And the connection we want to make here to the book of Jonah is that just because Jonah and the Israelites were born as descendants of Abraham, and bore the name of Israelite, it didn't mean they actually feared and loved God. Just because one might bear the name of an Israelite, or in our case, a Christian, it doesn't mean you automatically act like one. You might bear and claim the name of God for you're a disciple of Jesus. You might claim that Jesus is your master, but where in your life do you blatantly and willfully fail to line up with that claim? We might claim to represent God's kingdom and be his child, but we might cheat on tests and assignments. We might claim to be a God-fearer, which is what it means to believe in God, but you are lazy or selfish and fail to love the people around you in the simplest ways. You may have gone to church your entire life. You may have been born into a Christian family. You might be serving God in AACF or here at Lighthouse in tremendous ways. You might hold the title of leadership like Jonah did as a prophet. You might read your Bible and listen to worship music and talk about how much you love God. But what does your life look like? And does it line up with what you say you believe? And that's the question that the author of Jonah is getting at. That's a question we all have to ask ourselves. So in verse 10, the men, they eventually become afraid, as we see, because they know the God they are dealing with now. At first, they were afraid in verse 5 because they thought they were about to die, so it's physical fear. But now in verse 10, we see a spiritual fear because they're filled with this holy fear that is directed towards Yahweh. Furthermore, these men start to indict Jonah and point out his folly. Israel was supposed to be a nation that feared God and displayed wisdom to the world so much that the world would come to it for wisdom. They were to be a holy nation, Again, a kingdom of priests that represented God as a holy people to bring in the nations and to bless them and to give them wisdom and to be mediators between them and God. 
But here we see an interesting reversal. Instead of Jonah, who represents the nation of God, reprimanding the godless nations for their folly, it's the godless pagans who are scolding Jonah for his. Even they are aware of the obvious stupidity of Jonah's actions. They say to him, essentially, how could you do this? And other translations render it, what have you done? As if they're absolutely dumbfounded and appalled at what he is doing. How could you be so stupid and to think that you could fool God and oppose yourself to him in this way? And that leads us to our next point, point number five. God exposes the absurdity of our sin. Jonah could have repented and the problem would have been solved. But instead, what does he have them do? He has the sailors throw him overboard. And so we see here the absurdity of our stubbornness before God. Jonah would rather die in the sea than suggest to the sailors that they turn around and return him to Joppa so he can complete God's call to preach to Nineveh. And we shouldn't mistake Jonah here telling the sailors to throw him overboard for a godly self-sacrificial act of compassion toward the sailors so he can stop the storm. But we should see it as a selfish and stubborn act that was fueled by his desire not to heed God's call to Nineveh. And as one scholar puts it, Jonah is quite prepared to die for his beliefs or prejudices against Gentiles, and he believes perhaps his death will thwart God's plans. It's like imagine a Nazi in a prisoner of war cell and the guards tell him the war's over and all you need to do is to be set free, to be set free is to say that you're sorry to a Jewish soldier, soldier and renounce your allegiance to Hitler. And if he does this, he'll be released and he'll get to live and he'll get to see his family once again and he can return home. But if he refuses, he dies. And imagine if he is so stubborn that he chooses to die. And we would look at this and just think of the utter folly of this man. All he has to do is recant and repent of his beliefs and his ways, and he will gain everything back, but he doesn't. And this is essentially what Jonah is choosing to do. He is so stubborn and bent on his foolish ways that he's willing to die for them. Jonah is so self-deceived and has suppressed the truth so far in the back of his mind after God continues to prod at his conscience to call him back that he's willing to resist God in a battle he knows he will lose and die for in the end. Surely as an Israelite and as a prophet, Jonah knew where this was going to end up, but he still continues in his sin. This reminds me of a time when one of my professors uh, in college was talking to us about just the absolute irrationality of pride and resisting God. And he had us turn to James 4, 6. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for us. But if you remember, James 4, 6 famously reads, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he goes on to say, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so my professor, he pointed out just the logic of this verse when you think about it for a second, especially where it says that God opposes the proud. You know, a verse can become so familiar to us that we just forget what it really means or the implications of it. And he pointed out that when we are proud and when we continue in our rebellion and sin against God and resist him, God opposes us. And what does that mean? 
Well, essentially what we do is that we set ourselves up as God's enemies in a sense. And when we do this, we are essentially going to war against God. And I'll never forget what he said, but my professor essentially was like, if you understand the implications of this verse and you still want to be proud and if you want to oppose God and think you're going to win, all right, if you want to do that, go for it. But all I have to say is good luck. And that is what Jonah is doing and what we do, all of us do when we're proud and we resist God's will instead of repenting. We're setting ourselves up for a war that we know we will never win, where we will be crushed. Yet we, in our absurdity and sinful self-deceit, think we can win. So we continue to rebel against God and we resist him instead of giving in and humbling ourselves before him. We know what we are doing is wrong and we know it invites God's hostile opposition, yet we continue in it anyway. So the question I have for you is this. When you look at your life right now, in what ways are you clearly doing what Jonah is doing? In what ways are you in the absurdity of your sin clearly rebelling against God and resisting him? In what ways are you inviting God's opposition by being proud, thinking you know better? Furthermore, what does it look like for you to humble yourself and repent? What does it look like to submit to him and find grace and mercy instead? So finally, as we come to verses 14 to 16, this is the crux of the passage and the crux of the book. The sailors, we expect to worship other gods, and they do at the beginning of the story, but we see them end up worshiping Yahweh, and they offer sacrifices and make vows to him. Jonah, we expect to worship Yahweh, but he doesn't. And so God is saying, oh yeah, Jonah, you think they, that there's no hope for these Gentile pagan sailors, right? Or those Ninevites who you think are so bad. Well, look, they believe in me and worship me when you fail to do so. And in verse 14, the first prayer to God in the story doesn't come from the Israelite. It doesn't come from Jonah, but it comes from the Gentiles. Before, they were crying out in terror to all their gods, but now they're calling out upon the God of heaven. In the King James Version, the sailors say, we beseech thee. And in the New New International Version, the NIV, it says they cried out and say, please to God. And the NASB says they earnestly prayed. So these men, they began to see their utter dependence upon the God of Israel. And this is a display of desperation and humility and faith by them. They don't wish to essentially kill Jonah by throwing him out of the boat. They don't want to face the wrath of Yahweh by doing so. So they plead for mercy over their lives. And the soldiers say at the end of verse 14, O Lord, you have done as it pleased you. And they acknowledge that God is absolutely sovereign. And they also acknowledge the necessity for humans to act accordingly. So these events in Jonah show us that nothing can thwart God from fulfilling his will. And even the unbelievers in the story recognize this. Last week, uh, you may have seen on the news or or SportsCenter um, that there was a football player named DeMar Hamlin. And um, if you saw what happened, um, he got hit um, on a tackle or he was tackling a player. And he got hit uh, just in the right spot in his chest at the precise time uh, that would cause him to have cardiac arrest. And what was amazing in that moment and in the following days is that as you watched the news, as you watched SportsCenter, you saw so many people praying 
um, which was just so odd, and, but so awesome to see. You saw even unbelievers praying. You saw them praying on TV. Um, you saw all the players uh, in the game when it all happened praying on the field. And so we see here that even unbelievers at times can pray and sometimes are in contrast to us, right? I, I think of um, just even a family member who was telling me a story, and I know that, that he's an atheist. He's, he's told me he's an atheist. He doesn't believe in God, and I've had conversations with him. Uh, but one time as we were just talking, you know, and I was sharing my faith, um, you know, he mentioned that when my cousin was, was younger and when he was first born, um, that he had a, a bad heart condition and they didn't know if he was going to live. And he was telling me, he's like, yeah, I don't believe, but in that moment I was praying. And so in times of desperation, we even see these unbelievers calling upon God in the story and in everyday life when things happen. So the question I want to ask us is, do we call out to God and pray to him in moments of desperation? Or for us, is he invisible and powerless? Do we doubt his love and his care and his ability to step in and change things? And do we think that we have the power to take things into our own hands? The nation of Israel in times of peril, if you read the Old Testament, they often look to other gods and idols and anything but God for help. When there was severe, severe famine or drought, they would turn to Baal, for example, and they thought those other things could save them. So we want to ask ourselves, what do we flee to in times of need? What do we look for for relief? Do we focus simply and solely on the things that are going wrong, the things that worry us? Or do we take those things and bring them to God as his children? Do we have faith that God cares for us and will take care of these things and has the power to do so? Do we think we can do it on our own? Because we see Jonah, he wasn't bringing anything to God. He didn't care to acknowledge God, but we see that the sailors did. And as believers, we should be known as people who incessantly bring everything to God. And so when we come to the end of the scene in verse 16 and the end of the story, we read that the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And we see the word fear pop up four times in this passage. And I think this is deliberate by the author. And I think there's a link with the other uses of the word fear in verses 5, verses 9, and verses 10. And verse 10. And we see that the fear for the sailors becomes increasingly directed toward God. In verse 5, as I mentioned, the, sea, the sailors, they feared the storm first, and they, they had physical fear for their lives, and they cried to their gods. Then in verse 9, when Jonah confesses he fears the Lord, the sailors respond in the next verse by becoming afraid of Yahweh when they recognize who Jonah's God is. And finally, here in verse 16, we see that their fear climaxes into a godly fear that leads to outright conversion and worship. So again, we see a contrast between Jonah and the sailors. One commentator writes, Jonah's fear is a feeble thing in the story for all its orthodoxy or right belief, right doctrine, compared with the supernatural awe of the seamen. And so this is the point the, narr or this is the, point the narrator is making to his Israelite audience. He's saying, you and Jonah think you're better than these Gentiles. Well, look at Jonah and look at them. Isn't it ironic that Jonah says he fears God, 
but his actions are in complete contradiction with his confession. While the sailors who don't think, who you don't, or sorry, who you think are so bad, end up having the right and intended response by responding to the storm in fear of God. So the main thing we want to highlight is that the sailors' unexpected confession of faith is parallel, we'll see, to the Ninevites in chapter 3 at the end of the story. Because later on in the story, what incredibly happens in Nineveh, repentance, is what should have happened in Israel and in Judah, but didn't. And both are a stroke of literary genius by the author to emphasize this role reversal and the main point of the book. Jonah and Israel act high and mighty because they claim to be the people of God who fear him. And they think the Gentile nations are so much worse than they. However, we see in this story, Jonah and Israel, they eat their words, so to speak, and they're embarrassed because they turn out to be more like the godless nations. And the godless nations, they're the ones who turn out to be how God's people should be. And they fail to fear God, uh, the nation of Israel, and they repent they fail to repent of their sin while the pagan nations do. And so this is a polemic and it's an indictment on God's people and their self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And it's meant to prompt God's people to self-examination and humility, repentance, and ultimately salvation. In these verses, the sailors respond with appropriate sacrifices and vows. And this is an astonishing picture if you think about it. Jonah, he's sinking in the sea while above him, sailors from different nations join in thanksgiving and praise, worshiping the name of Yahweh and offering him a sacrifice and vows. And I'm reminded how oftentimes unbelievers who don't claim to know God can act godlier and more loving than believers, including myself. In fact, some of the most loving, gracious, and warm people I know in my life are unbelievers. And I'm always put to shame when I think about how I call myself a Christian a person who's supposed to be known for my worship of God and my love for others, yet how much I disobey God or fail to be a loving person. And I think that is what God is trying to show us here. And he's trying to show us, look at these unbelievers who act in ways that honor me. And I think there's something seriously wrong. We all know this you know, when we look at this picture, if, if I claim to be a Christian and I'm shown up by unbelievers in the most basic ways of loving and, and being a Christian, when we see that, we need to learn from it and assess where we need to be better. And we should feel embarrassed and ashamed when we see unbelievers acting in ways that are more loving and godlier than us. And we should assess where we are falling short. Right? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5 when he hears that um, someone in the congregation is sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul says, the Gentiles don't even do this. You know, it's so obvious that even unbelievers know that this is wrong and they don't do it. And so I'd like to close with this. As we go through the prophets in the book of Jonah, we can easily be discouraged. Right? It can feel like all the prophets do is scold us. It can feel like even now as I'm preaching to you that I'm just hitting you over the head with a, a Bible but we must remember that when the prophets proclaim judgment on God's people, it's always done out of love, as odd as it may seem. And we remember that God made a covenant with his people, that he was never going to leave them. He affirms them that, yes, I might be scolding you now. Yes, I might be judging you now, but it is for your good, and I will never leave or forsake you. 
right? Because it's always meant to lead his people to humble self-examination, which leads to repentance and ultimately a a restored relationship with him. And so that is my prayer for us, Beacon. Let's pray. Gracious Father, um, as we think about this passage and as we think about your actions of judgment, uh, your actions um, that stem out of a, a hatred and anger towards sin, including our own. God, we uh, don't want to forget that you are a gracious and patient God. And we thank you for that, God, that in the moments that we disobey and sin, that you don't forsake us, but you lovingly uh, call us to repentance and you lead us back to yourself. And so we thank you for even moments where um, we have to hear tough words for us, um, knowing that a restored relationship with you and life um, walking in righteousness is for our joy, for your glory. And so we just pray that that would be um, the truth of our lives and just ask that you would um, bless our upcoming semester and that we would live in such a way that honors you. And we just pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.